At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again. It is now 52 years later. This is their story. I tell myself, what's done is done I tell myself, don't be a fool Play the field, have a lot of fun It's easy when you play it cool I tell myself, don't be a chump Who cares, let him stay away That's when the phone rings and I jump as I grab the phone, I pray Let it please be him Oh dear God, it must be him It must be him Or I shall die Or I shall die Oh hello, hello My dear God, it must be him Welcome back to the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. I'm your host, Frankie Cambaletta, and with me, as always, Chris Ketters. The Chris Ketters. He's not singing again. I got him to not sing. He was singing prior, which was just terrible, but we are... Ouch! I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. We're actually podcasting from Hannibal, Missouri, inside a haunted church. Yes, yes. Uh, I'll go ahead and do a plug for you. I'll do a plug for you okay. that we actually talked about this on another one of your podcasts, Graveyard Shift. Correct. We talked about this place, so check that out if you're interested. Check out the episode where Frankie Campbelletta and Chris Ketters get together and they talk about the Hannibal's Haunted Church. Very good stuff. Wow. I want to thank uh, Michael Irwin, who owns the building, for letting us uh, broadcast here today. So greatly appreciate that. Uh, we are going to put together a nice paranormal hunt mm-hmm. and try to raise money for the church so we can keep it open and keep it alive. Yeah, this is probably the mo- most haunted place in Hannibal. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. It hasn't stopped since I've been here. It's... <laughs> 58 degrees outside, it's about 32 in here. And we're hearing knocks and noises and smells, and we're just sitting here doing a podcast. Yep, just trying to get through the podcast, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Not getting possessed. <laughs> 32 minutes, let's go. <laughs> you did a great bonus episode. Oh, thank you. I had a really good response from the crowd. We talked to a bunch of other people that had listened to it, and I think that the the Craig theory, right, is that what we're calling yeah. it Yeah. It's so odd. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of in left field. We've talked for seven episodes now about uh, the, the three boys were together and that they were all good friends. And now you're hearing from this guy named Greg Henderson who's saying, I don't know why Craig was with him. They're, they're not really friends. What? <laughs> right. And I think that that's when it really starts to get this deepening. It, it gives you, it was chilling when I was actually editing it because you had sent it to me. And I'm like, well, what song could I use? And Buffalo, well, oh, I'm not going to mention the whole name, but <laughs> there you go. that song, when you listen to it and you listen to the episode, it's really chilling mm-hmm. uh, what's going on with it. But you had some updates. 
Yes, and let's get to those real quick. Uh, one of the big things, and I'm not sure which episode we talked about it in, but one of the things that we were really excited about is trying to find out what the name of the construction company was. And I, I, I teased this on our Facebook page, so if you haven't been on our Facebook page yet, make sure to check out Lost Boys of Hannibal and also jump in. We've had some ads just recently of some new people in the discussion groups as well, so those numbers are growing every day as yes. well. Uh, so go check that out. Be part of the discussion. Help us uh, try to figure out this mystery from 1967 but we do want to give you an answer so we found out and i want to thank marissa elson from missouri department of transportation uh, i contacted her we she was excited to help out which anytime you have that happen with the state employee you're like great <laughs> awesome absolutely um but uh, she went and they did not have anything in hannibal which is where the office is at so she contacted the archive library in jefferson city missouri and was able to get the name of the construction company that worked on 79 1967 it was called j.a tobin construction frankie get this they are still in existence today which means they might have some records for us they might, and uh, I don't know if this is the time where I drop it, uh, the uh, other part of this or not, but I'm going to go ahead and do that, and if you do a search for J.A. Tobin Construction, there is a lot of lawsuits that come up in Google searches. Let's throw that little tidbit of information wow. out for you. <laughs> Probably should have done that after we called them, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it's a simple Google search. I mean, right. they don't even really have a website. I, it's would, just literally... I would think that that is associated with a lot of construction companies. You would think. And, and that was a question I asked uh, Marissa at Modives. Like, it seems very odd doing a Google search for them and seeing all this these lawsuits. And she's like, yeah, we don't really deal with that. Because I asked her, I was like, is that common? She's like, yeah, we don't really deal with that in, so we never really see that part of it. But, I mean, they had lawsuits from municipalities. They had some lawsuits from individuals. Um, and it's, you know, if you're a 60-year-old company, it's bound to happen multiple times, but uh, it just seemed very odd that those were the first things that popped up on a Google search for their, for that company. Incredible. Incredible. So that was our first update. So J.A. Tobin Construction, if you want to check them out and see uh, a Google search uh, for them, we definitely appreciate that. Or definitely you'd be interested to see what you can find. Uh, also, another quick update. Uh, in, I think I talked about this on our discussion group as well. I spent a solid four hours in the Hannibal Public Library a few weeks ago and went through everything from about May 2nd or 3rd all the way to the end of June of 1967. I went through every single newspaper from that time, pulled out every single article, any article that says anything about them. Well, we found out some information after the fact. And the reason this wasn't brought up in Karis's report is because Karis wasn't really involved at this point in time. There is an article from June 7th from the Hannibal Courier Post. And it talks about that there was a heated city council meeting the night before on June 6th. Come to find out, Helen Dow went to the city council meeting to request that they reopen and do one more search. And this is because of the... And the, we haven't talked about that. That's the other big, big item that we want to pass along to you guys. And can I go ahead and do that too? Absolutely. We found out who the name of the troublemaker is. We have the name of the troublemaker. We were ironically going through all of those newspaper articles. And even though Karis is a little coy about not mentioning who it is, the newspaper is not. <laughs> <laughs> the newspaper is like straight up. This is who's causing the problems. And, and so we were able to find out his uh, name is, uh, is Lloyd Atwood, 
and he is from St. Louis. That is the troublemaker. He's in my town. He is in your town. Uh, and the reason why we bring this up now is because in actually this article from June 7th, 1967, it actually talks, and I'm going to go ahead and just read this real quick paragraph here. It says, Mrs. Helen Dow, mother of, uh, sorry, it's in dark here, uh, mother of one of the lost youths, asked that the city council or the mayor authorize the search to be continued. Mrs. Dow feels that the youths are trapped in a lower level of Murphy's Cave after information from Lloyd Atwood, St. Louis, indicated that the underground tunnels and rooms do exist. This was in June. And remember, the first little hints that we got from the troublemaker came back all the way from like 10 days after the boys went missing. And because that's when they did the search, they got the odor. Those were tips based off of Atwood's information. Now we're all the way a month after that, and we're still having Atwood throw in information. Right. This is the line of grief. This is the line of uh, closure that parents are trying to find. And unfortunately, sometimes when you're in these types of situations, you're trying to pull at everything. And if Atwood was creating some kind of misdirection. What we, what me and Chris did today was we actually, being in Hannibal, we went by Murphy's Cave today. We did a Facebook Live. You can check out that video. We also did Swan Street, which we talked about in the last couple episodes. And we also did the 79 Road Cut, where you could see where Stoney's Hole was. And we're going to post all those videos on our Facebook. And I guess today's episode is all about William Karras. And it's not really about where he was born and what his likes or dislikes were, or where he ends up. It's more about another case two years prior to the boys going missing. A case very similar to the Lost Boys of Hannibal. So we're going to start getting into the Karis now of 1965, Chris. Okay. It's a very interesting type of story that happens here now. Yeah, let me go ahead and point that out to you. You were researching, we were doing some research together, and you were like, listen to this article. And I was like, okay, I'll listen to the article. And I think at one point in time, you looked at me and said, did your jaw just drop? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yep. <laughs> so interesting stuff coming up. It's definitely uh, chilling when you start to, when things start to come unglued in any type of circumstance, it really starts to lend itself to conspiracy. What is really happening in Hannibal, Missouri, in 1967? It starts in May 10th. It ends in June. There's a lot of speculation amongst the crowd. And we've heard from a bunch of sources during Hannibal's 1967 exploration that Karis was a media hound. This is what we were talking about, the repelling. Yeah, the very first thing. The very first thing in some of, and I'm, I'm not sure 100%, but I think it was Christensen. It may have been a different member of the group, but he were talking about how when when Karis and their group got together, the first thing they did was for a TV station, they got repelling rope and repelled down one of the cliffs. That's not searching for the kids. <laughs> it absolutely isn't, but it does mention the fact that he's repelling, and this guy repels me. <laughs> so, speaking of repelling, this story in 1965 is all about repelling and what happens. So, I'm going to get into it. The James Mitchell Award was established in 1970 um, by the NSS Convention for the best scientific paper presented by someone less than 25 years old. It was named in honor of James Mitchell. He was a chemist at MIT Graduate School working on Gemini Space Project, 
He's a very intelligent human being. His death occurred in a cave known as Schroeder's Pants Cave in 1965. It brought national attention to a small cave in Herkimer County, New York. I'm going to read the lead into it, and then we'll get into the meat of it. Okay, Chris? Okay. The unsuccessful rescue recovery effort under the direction of William Karras, my favorite person, was controversial and is still discussed in the caving community today, almost 50 years later. No one likes to leave a body behind. What was thought to be a closed incident, however, was reopened in the same year that the boys went missing in 1967. The secret of the cave's opening slowly spread among cavers, and in 2006, a group re-entered the cave to recover the remains of Mitchell's body. It is also said that a movie is now in production, and it's being filmed by a grandson of one of the people that was searching for Mitchell's body. And his name is Christian Lyon, and he's going to tell that story. Now, I don't know if that documentary has come out, Chris, but I am going to research in my film community who Christian Lyon is, did the film ever make, or see where he's at with it. And maybe Shift Films can jump in there and say, hey, what's going on with your film, and how can we help you? Right. That'd be great to see. And, and obviously, it's going to help us along our path, too, to find out exactly what's going on. So originally, Chris, the cave was called Mannheim Cave. But it was named after, it was named after a nearby community. So just to get to the Schroeder's Cave incident, or Schroeder's Pants, the guy that actually discovered the cave was a, was a principal at uh, Dodgeville School in, in New York. And Mame I just Schroeder. Mame Schroeder, right. And while he was doing exploring, he lost the seat of his pants twice. Yeah, and I was going to point that out, but you already kind of did. Pants, P-A-N-T-S. I, when, you first, when I first heard you say that, I was like, yeah. Pains, pans, <laughs> what? No, pants, in which is, sounds so weird for a cave name to have it's called Schroeder's <laughs> Pants. Although Mannheim Cave was the given name, it actually was more memorable to have it named Obviously. after somebody's pants. <laughs> Those are very, very popular pants. In 1965, January and February is usually a good time to explore these underground stream passages. And a five-day thaw, snow and ice had melted and entered the cave. This is when Mitchell decided to enter the cave with two other friends. At about 5 o'clock p.m., Mitchell repelled into the pit with the aid of an iron tripod to explore a side horizontal lead located 20 feet below the top of the shaft and 50 feet above the pit floor. He returned and prosyched back up the rope in a cascade of 34 degrees um, Fahrenheit. It was water flowing. This was that water that was coming into the cave and it was basically falling at 8 to 10 gallons per minute. So this is coming from the top? Correct. Okay. So as he's rappelling down, he's avoiding the wirefall. Okay. Gets down to the bottom, and then he comes back up. Because he's trying to get to a horizontal cave that's somewhere along that path? Exactly. He's trying to explore deeper and more. Now, he had been in the cave a couple times already. This is his third attempt inside this cave. So he must have saw something in his first two excursions within the cave. On this particular day, though, the water was flowing so fast that his light went out. And we've heard this before. We've heard when cavers go in with those damn helmets in 1965, the water kind of got into his helmet and his light went out. Mm-hmm. Then the water started falling on his hands and then his hands became numb. Once his hands became numb, he couldn't really feel the rope. Mm-hmm. And so he started knotting the line accidentally. Hmm. And as he was trying to rappel back up, the knots were getting fit inside the notches. And so he got stuck about eight feet from where he entered. So he was only eight feet away 
from where he started his rappel. He was right there. He could see wow. his friends above. Here's the problem, though. He was calling to his friends. And you know, if you're down below in the cave and you start calling for people and they're 20 feet away with the water coming through, they might not necessarily hear him. Yeah. But 45 minutes after he's still stuck on here, this water is falling on him. And it's 35 degrees. Yeah. So this is what we talked about in one of the first episodes was exposure. This is one of the reasons. This is how you die from exposure. This is extreme exposure. Extreme. So can you just imagine being in light clothing, stuck on a rappel line, and water pouring at 8 to 10 gallons per minute is just falling on you. Hmm. And so he's drenched. He's pretty much numb. He can't see. He's stuck on this rope. Finally, his friends realize, where the hell is he? We're supposed to be out of this cave by 5 p.m. That's what they told the owner of the land. Hence, Mr. Lion, mm -hmm. which eventually his great-grandson would do this film. Hmm. Okay. So, to make matters worse, um, they tried. Uh, so, his teammates tried to pull him out the rest of the way up. There's only eight feet down there. But after another 45 minutes of effort, the attempt was unsuccessful. Uh, Miller and Bennett were his two friends with him. And Bennett went to go find help. So, Mitchell was no longer capable of responding at this point either. You know, the, he had succumbed to the cold. It felt that way. They weren't getting any response from him. Even though his friend was still down there, Bennett went for help. Here's the problem. At about 7 p.m., Bennett reached the farmhouse of a guy by the name of Mr. Gressler, located almost a mile from the cave's entrance. They phoned George Lyon in Dodgeville, about six miles away. Lyon was the justice of the peace and leased the land and was very familiar with the cave. With the help of another family that had snowmobiles, they were able to get back to the cave fairly quickly. There was difficulty working in the dark, and now the temperature, Chris, had dropped to negative 20 degrees. Oof. So can you only imagine it's dark, it's cold, it's wet, and somebody's stuck on a rappel line. It was so cold that the siren on the firehouse did not work. <laughs> wow. So they drove a truck into the street to sound the alarm. Two other people joined the party and tried to help by the name of Ralph and Marsden. They were kind of successful in raising Mitchell, but only less than a foot. So now it's like seven foot. Yes. Okay. And this was due to the limited space in the passageway. By 1 a.m. Sunday, more help arrived. George Lyon and Ed Strusky relieved Ralph and Marston and continued trying to pull Mitchell out of the pit. Mitchell had lost consciousness and was hanging horizontally at this point. Water was striking his shoulder and spilling onto his face. And this is like seven hours in? Yeah. Okay. And he's still alive at this point in time. Is that right? Well, he had lost consciousness. Okay. Um, so... At this point, everybody thinks it's possible that he's still alive, okay. but he's in a bad state of hypothermia. I would say, and that was one thing, note I just made for myself, is how long can he withstand that without dying from hypothermia? I mean, I would think, especially that condition, it would be, be pretty tough. It's pretty devastating. Yeah. Meanwhile, the uh, state police contacted, I'm pretty sure his name is Bob Fenichel or Fenichel. He's the chairman of the Northeast region of the NSS who then contacted William G. Karras, founder of the National Capital Rescue Team, also known as NATCAP, or CATNAP. Anyway, Karras made arrangements to have Air Force Two fly in his team to Rome Air Force Base, AFB, in Rome, New York, 
and then via helicopter to Dodgeville about 4 a.m. The police, once again, escorted the great uh, William Karras. Are you reading about 1965 or 1967? This is 65. Exactly. Exactly. exactly what happens. But Air Force Two this time, Chris. Air Force Two, which Mm -hmm. is where the vice president flies on. The police escorted them to the home of George Lyons, where they were briefed on the situation. The team was then taken to the scene about 6 a.m. amidst hundreds of curiosity seekers. They sled it to the entrance with all their equipment. Sled it. Is the operative word. And we're looking at about 14 hours yes. since he went in? And okay. he's just hanging horizontally. He's probably frozen stiff at this point. At about 4 p.m., one of the members of the rescue team left. He just left. We don't know why, but he returned to Rome Air Force Base. Next, Karis allowed only members of his team to access the cave. This is where things... Safety? Safety or I don't want to be judged. Okay. It's kind of how, as it plays out, you guys will see that that sentence will make a lot more sense in the upcoming paragraphs. The last local to leave the cave was Strusky. A large generator and lights were requested and delivered by 6.30 p.m. A doctor arrived with an electronic stethoscope and requested to check the body. Karras decided to make the test himself and reported to the state police at about 8.30 p.m. that he had lowered the device down to Mitchell's chest and could not detect any sign of life. Karras and another person by the name of John Sanders then returned to lower the body to the bottom of the pit. Karras failed to obtain any positive identification of the body for the officials. But the sources that were with Mitchell that day reported that he had a wallet and it contained over $300. Hmm. Wait a minute, what? Yeah. <laughs> Never so, found his wallet. So, uh, so... Okay, I, I'll just just keep going. <laughs> okay, well, just chime in. I mean, this is a fun episode because yeah, this no. is, it's just this is the only way to do it because I want to give this person credit who wrote this, and I don't want to paraphrase. So right. it's well, just easier if I go through the whole story. <laughs> let me let me ask you this question real sure. quick. So I guess one of the things that stuck out to me, and maybe so they're lowering the stethoscope down. Right. It's not Electronic. like they're lowering a a person down with the stethoscope. No, it's just a, it's a device. So why does Kara say I'll do it instead no of a idea. trained professional? A doctor? Yeah. And if it's just laying on somebody's check, how does he know how to check vitals? Yeah. I mean, granted, and this is the first thing that popped in my head, you're 26 hours into it now, yeah. and this guy's in, was minus 20 degree temperatures bef- overnight. It's probably not improving any. Yeah. I mean, it, chances are pretty, pretty bleak right now as it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's it, well, as we get back into it, I think the audience will be like Jesus, because um, that's where I was. A camp was set up around the pit, and activities continued throughout the night. The rescuers tried to determine how the body could be extracted. At some point during the period of time, film footage was made, which later would be made into the movie The Schroeder's Pants Incident. The film was available for rent to members of the Speleological Society of America (SSA) which Karis organized in October 1966. It gives you a little bit about the SSA and how he formed that. At the same time, he's capitalizing on someone's death. Now, for educational purposes, I get it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they want to show how to do this. But as we read further, you'll see, why would you want to film your failure? All right, you got me going. Keep going. (laughs) On Monday morning, February 15th, George Lyon became concerned about the recovery effort. Little progress was being made. Karis seemed to be taking more interest 
in the news reporters than in the retrieval of Mitchell's body. Lyon requested that Karras make a map of the cave so they could drill a hole into the pit. The survey was completed by evening in preparation for drilling a series of six-inch diameter holes. Okay, so they're boring holes now on the sides of this insurance? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. I guess they're going to try to extract from the bottom. Okay. Is what I'm thinking happens. And this is how many days after he went went in? You said, is it? This is three days. Three days. Okay. Yeah, because it was February 13th. This is now February 16th. On Tuesday morning, February 16th, three days after Mitchell first entered the cave, the drill rig was in place and the first hole was advanced through 35 feet of overburden to within four feet of the center of the pit. After several more holes were drilled, Karras reported that the cave was collapsing and that tons of rock, mud, and debris had almost killed him and several others. The drilling was stopped. Shortly after noon that day, Karras reported to the state police that he had placed Mitchell's body in a bag and that further collapse had created a perilous situation. He recommended that the cave be dynamited shut. The police assisted in obtaining the explosives and proceeded to charge the drill holes. One report states that 200 sticks of dynamite were used. At about 2.30 p.m., the area was cleared and the huge charge detonated. By 3.30 p.m., NatCap prepared to leave with a final meeting to be held in the Dodgeville High School Auditorium. Can we step back for a minute? Sure. I, I guess I'm confused. So he's eight at, at one point at the beginning. He's eight feet. He's he's stuck. He, is he he's not wedged, is he? He's just stuck on the rope. So the way that I imagine how he repelled down was he probably made a, a self-made bench seat. Oh, okay. And he hooked mm-hmm. it up to an iron tripod and repelled himself down. Okay. When he was coming back up, his light went out. The water ran over his hands, causing numbness. Mm-hmm. He couldn't feel for anything. He couldn't see for anything. And he was slowly knotting the rope as he was trying to come up. This is very easy to do because the rope itself was getting hard from okay. the water. And it started knotting up between basically the the levers that pull you in and out. Okay. It's kind of an interesting thing. I read some more about how that can possibly happen. It doesn't happen today with today's technology. The ropes are built differently. They're insulated. But back then. So, uh, so again, we're only, we're not that, we're not that far down. No, so you really think about it. How is it, how are they having such a hard time? They can't just go and grapple or do something just to grab him and pull him out. I mean, something else. I mean, obviously yeah. his rope's useless, but can we find another something to hit him, get him with and pull him, yank him out? Yeah. Initially, you would think that, all right, dude, just unstrap yourself. Here's another rope. Mm-hmm. Climb up. Right. We got you. Yeah. Like, I thought of 100 scenarios, but this gap, this space must have been so tight that it must have been impossible for the other cavers. But also remember, too, uh, Bennett and his other friend that were with him were novices. They right. had no real caving experiences or spelunking or repelling experience. So go a little bit more recent then, and you brought it up, was about Karis putting a bag on, or putting him in a bag, if the space is so tight. So I'm guessing they dropped him back down? So Karis reports that he got to the bottom of the cave. So so, so either he was, they let, they let him down or he fell down into the bottom of the cave. Yeah, we're going to get to that right now. Okay, okay. Because it was the same question that I had. I'm like, why isn't the report telling me, how was Karis able to, get down there to put yeah. a body on him, but he couldn't drag him out of the hole? Exactly. It's like, this is just weird. Okay. Right? Karis gave his report to a full audience, 
making derogatory remarks about members of the community, including George Lyon. Just before 5 p.m., as he prepared to board a helicopter to return home, the community presented Karras with a new outfit of clothes and boots in gratitude for his efforts. The Mitchell story became front-page news. The press releases from the various wire services were full of errors. No two were alike. Few mentioned sources other than Karras. <laughs> Some articles were so erroneous that it made one wonder if they were even reporting the same incident. It reminded some of the Floyd Collins media circus in 1925. It seems that reporters will sensationalize what they see and have little time to verify the facts before they race for their publishing deadline. A lot like today. Yeah. <laughs> this is some fake news, Chris. Yep. It was said that Mitchell's parents were notified of the accident but were unable to come to the event. Some interpreted this as a lack of interest. Locals stated that his parents refused to provide for a funeral. The Associated Press notified Mitchell's uncle, and he did come to visit the cave entrance. What do you think of that? I'm just, I'm dumbfounded. I, I, the whole parent thing is just very strange. Yeah. But it, are you're associating that that could be fake news, though. Correct. Right? Okay. It's clarified later that the parents, of course, did care about their son, who was an MIT graduate school. Yeah. The kid is brilliant. After everyone had left the scene on Tuesday night, several of the Lyon family returned to board up the entrance and covered it with leaves and debris. By Wednesday morning, the job was complete with two loads of stone over the entrance and a smaller load of... Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't we just dynamite it? Totally just dynamited it. So why are we now putting rock and stone and wood over Yeah. Debris and stuff and just covering it. Am I missing something here? I guess so no one else will go near it or try to figure it out or get hurt. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Trust me, when I was reading this, I had to read it like five times. Yeah, no kidding. But once again, it's also 1965, mm-hmm. right? We're thinking very it's modern no age. different than what we've been talking about the last seven episodes either. Exactly. This is the same. Two years is not going to change. No. I mean, look at the cars back then. The headlights changed. That was about <laughs> it, you know? Most were satisfied that they had done their best under the circumstances. Herkimer County was left with quite a debt after the rescue. Even though local residents had donated much, George Lyon documented 10,000 cups of coffee, 3,500 sandwiches, 62 men, 10 skidoos, snowshoes, a drill rig, and a bulldozer. The locals talked about the tragedy for years afterward. Natcap went on to make additional headlines, Chris, with other cave rescue attempts being the key operative word there. Yeah, and that was something that my mind was just kind of kind of floating to is that we know about now 1965 the Schroeder Pants incident. We know about 1967. Has he had a successful cave recovery? No, but you know what does happen, Chris? No. That's when the phone rings. And once again, I start to pray. Let it 